broadcasting from an undisclosed location. From a secret hunting spot known only to him and the guy who told him about it and possibly the guy who told the guy who told him. It's a show all about hunting in New Zealand and around the globe. This is The Hunting Show. Find The Hunting Show on Facebook and Twitter for up-to-date information on upcoming shows and topics. What's up with the Pokemon Go thing? I get it. Completely and totally get it. I never thought I'd get to the age where something that so many people are starting to get into seems so foreign to me. I've always prided myself in being quite out there and being able to take on new technologies and really give them a go. And I found myself, look, I'm not a gamer. You know, I don't spend hours on PlayStations and things. I did find myself kind of excited at the prospect of the new, well, Nintendo, sorry, re-releasing their original console. Uh, see, so this is what, what's hard for me. You've got the old Pokemon Go thing, and the inner geek in me goes, maybe I should look. And the adult, the man, the hunter, the outdoors person looks at it and goes, piss off. Shouldn't do it, not going to do it. So I am going to resist it. I'm putting a line in the sand and I'm going to resist Pokemon Go. And those of you who listen to the show that know me, I want you to challenge me on this. Ask me occasionally. If you ever see me walking around staring at my phone and I'm looking for fictional, fictitious little animals, just just stop me. So you said you wouldn't, all right? And I'm not getting up in your grill if you do. Maybe a little bit I am, but I I don't care. Have fun. I'm not going to do it. And if I miss out on something, so be it. We'll see how I go with this. That's all I'm going to say about that. The other point I, I really wanted to bring up this week was this pest-free New Zealand business. I actually invited the Minister of Conservation on the show, and she declined didn't really say why just that uh, at this stage she wasn't going to appear on the show maybe it was time restraints although come back to me with the time so I'm going to continue this on your behalf I'm going to continue to try and get an interview with the minister Maggie Barry or the honorable Maggie Barry about this very subject because I do feel like I need to know more I like the idea in principle not sure about some of it. Let's just see. That's my opinion. I just want to wait and see. I want to see what they have to offer. How they propose to do this. Is it going to be an investment in new technology? Is it something like Professor Neil Gimmel's uh, you know, Trojan female project from Otago University? We will see. And I will keep you posted and I will continue to try and get the minister on the show. In fact, if you feel so inclined, please invite her yourself. Go onto her Facebook page and say, hey, you should appear on the show, and maybe that'll make her press secretary jump up and say yes. And lots of ministers or a few ministers have appeared on the show, and they've got their voice out there, and I'm sure they got something out of it because this is a very valid audience and a very vocal one. And we know hunters are passionate about the environment. And someone else that's really passionate about the environment is Kaylin McBurty. How are you, Kaylin? 
I'm good, thanks, Harry. And did I get your last name right? Did I get the R? You've given me a lecture about yeah, that. Yeah, How did I do that? It's not an easy one. Nah, no. Nah, I mean, yeah, I didn't want to sort of get it wrong because it's a, it's Irish, eh? Or is it Scottish? Nah, it's Scottish. Yeah, well, a bit of, a bit of both. A, yeah. bit of, a bit of both. Uh, came from Ireland, but originally from Scotland, so... Gee, okay. Listen, first of all, you're you've hit the our screens on stuff on Facebook and all sorts of things, and it's been mostly about your research. But what I want to touch on first is a little bit about you. So, so Caitlin, tell us about yourself and uh, in your uh, well, not just your background in the hills, but how did you come up with wanting to do a PhD? Oh, gee, you know. Yeah, yeah. So I grew up in Hawke's Bay. Mm-hmm. Um, I was on a farm, so I, I hunted actually in the cowiches as a speaker deer as I grew up. So I kind of always had an interest in nature. Um, and so as I got older, I went down the line of becoming a scientist, as you do. As you do. Um, <laughs> as you do. So yeah, I um, I went on and I did molecular science, and uh, it's quite complicated. So I decided that if I wanted to do a PhD, I was going to do something on do it on something I was really passionate about. Yeah, back, back that so, track up. Hang on, hang on. What what is man, oh, man, molecular science? What, what what did you do? Tell me what what is that? Okay, so I specifically did it on microbiology and genetics. Right, so um, little stuff. And then the mark. What's that? A little stuff. Little, yeah, little stuff. Yeah, yeah. right. right. <laughs> um, and so yeah, I moved to Queenstown, uh, which is just what young people do for fun, I suppose. And I uh, found out about the Wakatubu Whitetail, and there was just so little known about the herd that it sparked my interest, and I had a wee light bulb moment, and a week later I'd started a PhD. So, yeah. How did, that's, that's actually, uh, I didn't realise that. It took you a week to decide to do a PhD. Yeah, after figuring out that there was just, there was no information, and uh, finding out a little bit more about the herd from talking to people, I was... Yeah, I just sort of went, this is what I'm going to do. Gee, you're far more motivated than me. See, I, I took <laughs> like six months to decide to do one post-grad paper last year, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm actually sitting here at my desk immensely impressed. So, so just to go forward from that, you decided to do this PhD. Can you tell us what exactly that research was about? Obviously, this is heard. People know it's there. Um, they know the numbers aren't. Great, I would assume. Um, what what more did you need to know? What was it about? Well, basically what we needed to know is why those numbers were so small and why the herd wasn't living up to its true potential. So, you know, it's a small herd. It's a historic herd. It's been there 111 years. Um, and they've got large healthy deer and exceptional trophy quality when they're allowed to get to maturity. Uh, and... Unlike other deer in, the, in New Zealand, they were released specifically to attract overseas tourist hunters, and they've largely succeeded in that. Um, but what's happening is is the bucks aren't reaching that maturity, yeah. and the population is so small, and we need to find out why. So really the research is about finding the limiting factors, and preferentially the ones that we can actually do something about. Um, mm. It's all well and good to find ones that you know limit it, but if we can't fix it, then you know what's the point? So... Um, I started on on doing that, and really, it's about making sure the herd can be enjoyed by hunters in the future. Yeah, now something I read that that you have sort of come up with, or that maybe people knew, and you're just confirming that, is that a lot of them aren't reaching full maturity. 
did it take a lot to to get to that and or figure out why or have you even got to that yet yeah so it, you know it looks like the reason is hunting so historically the herd's been limited by hunting mm-hmm. um and hunting is a pretty amazing tool for population control and management and mm-hmm. we as hunters sort of tend to forget this but it's 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 taking too many animals or too many young animals that ends up you end up having a population that is very young and never actually reaching that potential. Okay. So is there other reasons that they've been limited? I mean, you talk about hunting, and historically it appears that's the case. Um, are there What other factors are limiting them? Is there something environmental, or did you not find that? So it's not just about hunting, obviously. Um, more recently they've had another limitation, which is, uh, the fact that they live in the same area as an endemic threatened bird species, so they're subject to pest control operations. In 2014, they took a really massive hit, um, and they've gone down to critical critical numbers. And of course, yeah, so hunting on top of that, and the combination of the two is is, is really putting a threat to them as a recreational resource. Mm. Is there a point where you get population collapse? Do you think? Obviously the zero. population was founded on nine individuals. So, right. you know, you can build a herd from, from very small numbers, but you have to keep in mind that took 20 years to build up to the point where they could be hunted. Uh, and 111 years later, and we're dealing with a, a really low population. So they are recoverable, um, but it will take some work, it will take some management, and it will take some protection of some sort. When you're talking low numbers... We're talking numbers on public land here. First of all, what are we what are we talking? How low are these numbers? Okay, so we've done a bit of work uh, on assessing the population status, uh, and it's not finished yet or conclusive yet, but it's pretty alarming. Really, we're looking at around less than two hundred white-tailed deer on public conservation land. So really low. And you're talking, there's a massive area down there, right? Everything in the South Island when it comes to land is just big. You're talking, <laughs> you're talking a monstrous area to have only 200 animals on. Yeah, so we're looking at, you know, 90 plus square kilometres. Or, yeah, more than that, yeah. To have, to so have 200 huge. animals, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's less than, less than one deer per square K, essentially. Yeah, and what's the? F- I, I might I might be going off on a tangent here, but what's the food like? Is there a, is it is there enough there to sustain the herd? Are you fighting a losing battle no matter what you do? Yeah, so the, the animals themselves appear really healthy. They're really big uh, body size, um, and you know we see over in the states when they've got less food, they actually decrease their their body size over time because it's beneficial for them to be smaller. So it's kind of indicates that the food should be fine for them. Um, and also they've never been detrimental or seen to be detrimental to the biodiversity of the area they live in. So it's unlikely that food's the limiting factor in them. Mm. Can I can I ask a stupid question? And and tell sure. me tell me if this is a stupid question. Because it might be. You know, you you're talking about a population that came from nine. So I'm assuming what's that, maybe, you know, five hinds and a few Stags, is that, is that, do you, what, how did it start? Okay, so, oh, I can't remember the actual figures off the top of my head, but that, that's about right. Um, so they got released into one area in 1905, and then they just got left to, to do their own thing. And, you know, they, they twin, so, so they can 
can reproduce quickly as long as they're not having you know high levels of mortality on the herd. So. Mm-hmm. Where I was going to with that is if you only had a few stags, what if the stags that bought in just weren't that into it? And so all their offspring just didn't <laughs> Not really... Not on the dough. Yeah, just didn't really want to get it on, you know? Some dudes have got higher libidos than others or whatever. What what if that was the case? Or, or has the number been high at some point? No. Look, <laughs> you know, they're pretty good at breeding in terms of animals. I'm sorry if, that, if that's hard word to answer, but I'm just thinking that. I'm thinking, yeah, you, you brought in a whole lot of guys that just weren't keen. Maybe they're bad. Yeah, no. Re- well, we've know? got we've got animals here, so they must have been keen on some level. And you know, like I said, <laughs> the trophy potential we've got in this herd is like incredible. Mm. Um, you know, a lot of other herds you'll see there'll be some big ones and you know a lot of smaller ones that never really do that well. Um, this herd, almost every buck in there is the potential to be record book. Yeah. So, you know, they're pretty special. Okay, so so. Pushing forward, has there been a time in the last 111 years where this herd has been significantly larger, or has it just never taken off? It just hasn't worked. Uh, well, they did a. So, like I said, there's been no information, but mm. they did a survey using pallet count back in the 70s, um, and they came up with a figure of 800. Um, but that was that was plus or minus four hundred and twenty, so you know somewhere between four hundred and twelve hundred there. So it was a pretty big gap. Um, apart from that, there's really no indication. Nineteen uh, seventies, it was recognised that the herd was a little bit low, and so they put a, a moratorium to protect them on crown leaf land, excluding Mount Aspiring National Park, and that was the non-issuing of hunting permits um, by the New Zealand Forest Service at the time. So. Mm. Uh, they've they've been low over the the whole course, and it just seems to be that constant pressure. Mm. Now, before we go on to possible solutions about this issue, and I'm I'm doing that in air brackets. I know you can't see that, but this this potential <laughs> issue is that is there is there tell us a bit a, bit, a little bit. I've never hunted white-tailed deer. That honest, I've never done that at all. Is there anything that what what's about them that makes them such a special herd? Well, like I said, you know, they're all capable of being these amazing trophies if they get to the right age. Mm. So the right age is over five years old. Um, and they're really beautiful animals. They're quite stunning to watch. So, you know, you, as a hunter, you always feel really good if you go out and, and you have to try and work really hard to get that one that you're looking for. So, mm. you know, they just make you feel good when you've passed up all of these other ones to get that, that buck. Yeah. Because Seeker, I'm not... Seeker are often a bit like that too, aren't they? They're beautiful animals. They're a little bit ninjury. I find them quite hard to <laughs> yeah. find sometimes and uh, and quite intelligent. And, and that's in comparison to our, our fellow friends, you know. The, those guys are um, a little bit easier to hunt as a rule when they, they're drilling out in the open. So what, what about white-tailed deer's habits make them a little bit unusual? Well, I guess they're, they're just really cautious. So they they watch very carefully they live in little groups so they you know watch out for one another and if you get flagged and by I mean flagged I mean a big white flag goes up literally yeah. um they're gone <laughs> two steps goodbye yeah. <laughs> you've lost your chance and they will disappear for days before they come back out so yeah because yeah. someone else said that to me they're like what was the word he used it said something along the lines of the it's like trying to hunt smoke they just disappear in the wind eh? yeah they're called they're called ghosts Normally, because yeah. they take two steps and they're gone. Yeah, and they must be very quiet. 
Yeah, and they don't make much noise in, in the rut either. So. What, what noise do they make? That's a stupid question. Oh, just, it's kind of like a grunting sound, but it's very quiet. It's not not nothing like you know the seeker or reds that throw their voices around, and they're not as spastic as the fellow who mm. you sound like a frog pond. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I, the first time I ever heard, uh, you know, fellows going at it, you know, um, woke up on this particular block, you know, being the, stayed the night freezing cold, woke up in the morning and started hearing it. It was quite unusual, eh? Those weird-sounding things, fellow. Um, <laughs> they are crazy. Now, you've have you got other stakeholders in this? I know that your research has gained attention of a lot of people and a lot of interested parties. Have you got the likes of Doc... Um, the the you know the the game animal council have you got all these guys starting to come on board or are they just kind of sitting in the wings and seeing where you go no so they've all been really supportive so uh the new zealand Deer association they've um donated quite a bit of money to help you know keep this fun this research going because you know this isn't it's, it's not like there's a amazing organization that sits out there and says we've you know, we'll give you all this money to do it. I have mm. to go out and look for it. So the NZDA has been really good um, for that. The GAC is impo- um, supportive yeah. of the project. Um, Surrey Club International have um, been pretty supportive as well. Um, and, uh, yeah, obviously Doc and Doc helped out. You know, they came on board it was about two months into the PhD and they went and did the pest, pest control operation. And so I went and talked to them. I said, hey, guys, hold on a second. I've got to do a PhD on these animals. Are they going to die or are we okay? Um, and because there was no information about it, they jumped on board and, and worked with everyone on the ground to find out whether whether there was actually a negative impact or not. Yeah, that's a really interesting thing. Doc, uh, look, look, hunters and Doc have this love-hate, hate to love and love to hate, this this weird relationship. And you're, what I was actually going to ask you next, and you kind of touched on it, is that these pest operations that by from what I can read of, of what you put out there, have been hard on this animal, were mm, initiated yeah, by Doc, right? Yeah, so, so they've got a purpose, they've got something they're trying to do, yeah. um, and it just unfortunately has a negative impact on, on, on what you know we as hunters stand for and what we want to try and do, mm. but you know we've got to work together on this, I suppose. So what have Doc, have Doc done anything to try and prevent their operations having mm. a negative impact on these animals. Yeah, so because I did that research in the last operation of what we found, mm. um, and hunters stood up and said, hey, look, this herd is important and we want to prevent this from happening again, um, Doc have listened. So we've got deer repellent being used this time around, so in the 2016 operation. Now, are you actually... Are you going to the next level? A lot of people say deer repellent doesn't work. Are you looking into whether it does? Because, again, there's a lot of, for want of a better word, bullshit out there that I hear. You know, people, oh, it doesn't work. How do you know? Well, I reckon. Well, hang on. <laughs> there's a lot of that that goes on, and hunters are brilliant at it, you know, spinning a yarn, and, and they've observed something, and that's fine. But are you actually going to go doing, are you doing anything about finding out whether deer repellent works? Yeah, so I've, I did the preliminary trials, which is on captive whitetails, so I'm checking that they, they repelled them full stop, and it was pretty clear. So when I gave them the pellets that had um, the non-repellent, like no repellent on them, they ate them in about three hours and were fairly hungry. Just real quickly, um, yeah, they, they, these pellets didn't have anything <laughs> dodgy in them. No, they, were yeah. just, they were just benign. Is that the- <laughs> 
Well, I regularly fed these beers, so they kind of yeah. used to get in pellets. So yeah, but they, they, yeah, these was, are the cool pellets. Yeah, these are the cool pellets, not the bad pellets. Yeah, yeah. Oh, these, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. there was no poison or anything. <laughs> I, can't, I, can't, I can't get ethics approval to do that. Sort of yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so then I, you know, at the same time, I, I gave them the option they could choose the repellent um, pellets. And they didn't touch those for three days. And like I said, I, I feed them every every day. So um, they were pretty angry with me about that and sort of stomped their feet and showed their frustration with me. How does how does um, deer repellent work? You know, it's not like that stuff. You know, remember when you're a kid, if you bit your nails, they put that gross-tasting stuff on them? I never bit my nails, but I know mm. people that did. Is it like that? Is it just something they just don't like tasting? Or is it something that puts them off by smell? It's the smell. You don't want them to go anywhere near them. So in this trial, they they stayed sort of two meters away. Um, nothing going. This is not. This is not great. So yeah, that, it was. It was. It was pretty clear result. But you know, it's not in the wild. They're not exposed to the environment, so it won't be. It's not exactly the same as the actual drop. So there is cause for concern, and, and we kind of do have to make sure that this technique works because um, it's all well and good trying to limit the bite kill, but if it doesn't work, then you know, we've got to change something so that it does work next time. So that's one thing that we maybe, well, we as in Department of Conservation and interested stakeholders can do to maybe help revitalise this herd. What else can be done? What else can, you know, is it is it doom and gloom? Is it kind of inevitable? Or is there some realistic thing that we can do that, or that can be done to help this herd recover? Yeah, well, I suppose the first step is to make sure that the repellent works so that we don't, you know, accidentally kill them that way. Um, And the other step is to look at a way to manage them that's going to work for hunters. So the reason I say that is is hunters are the ones who have to abide by whatever management scheme is is chosen. Um, So they really have to be involved in in making that up and determining that and, and making sure that they have that herd is protected because, you know, as hunters, we're the ones that really benefit if these animals are, are up there at their true potential and, and, and they're able to be hunted as a resource. Mm-hmm. So what what will you suggest? Are you talking about a limited season, a little bit like they have in the US? Are you talking about tagging? Um, and there's actually been some evidence that I've read that tagging almost increase, you know, just a pure tag system that's open 12 months would mean that I've got my one tag, I'm going to go get it, and I'm going to keep going till I get that one tag. Um, have you done any research on the psychology of that, or is, is anyone, what's the best way to make this work? Well, it's not, I mean, at the end of the day, it's, it's not going to be my decision, and there's a lot of different techniques out there, and, you know, in the States, they've, they've used all of these techniques, Um I haven't read too much into it. I've kind of been focusing on the other parts because <laughs> yeah. it's a pretty big project. Um, but, you know, as long as hunters are taking an older animal, it's never going to have a negative impact like it would be if they're taking younger animals. Mm. And as long as not too many are going, then, you know, the same same thing applies. So, yeah, it's, it's not doom and gloom. It's not going to end. It, it just needs to be looked after properly. And, you know, us as hunters have to do that because mm. we're the ones that like them. <laughs> the next the next thing that kind of strikes me is that what you're proposing is interesting and I think a lot of hunters could get on board with this and we all want this to work. We you know I I'm sitting up here in the North Island and I've never done this and now or never hunted white-tailed deer and I'm thinking oh maybe I want to well, you know <laughs> I, I I want this to work a little bit like I support the Wapiti Foundation. 
who pays for it? Because yeah. no matter what you do that involves <laughs> government departments or large organisations like NZDA, and, and you know they do great work, it costs money. How, how do you do yes, that? Yeah, how do you do that? So, so far, I've, you know, like you say, I've had help from the NCBA and particular branches of that of that organisation, from SBI, from DOC, and from individual hunters as well. But well, as far as it goes, it's um, really up to us as hunters to protect the herd because, you know, like I said, we're the ones that really care about them and we're the ones that have a, basically the power and the voice to make it happen. So we managed to get the repellent on the herd. That's just the first step. We can make anything happen to help this herd. Um, if we're willing to even just if everyone put $10 towards it, you know, it's going to secure a future for the herd and mean that we've got access to hunt them in the future. Because that would be cool, eh, crowdfunding. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of crowdfunding and how that could work. Are you suggesting that's something that you would look at instigating? Yeah, I'd quite like to do something like that. And the reason being is that if it's crowdfunded, the information is essentially owned by the public, so it keeps everything free to us all. There's no outside organisation influencing the results. It's simply just the way it is, um, and anyone can access it and use it to to have benefit. So, I think it's probably the best the best way to go forward, and it's not going to cost any one person too much. You know, <laughs> you know, ten dollars isn't very much. It's a couple of coffee, cups of coffee. Yeah, well, I like coffee. Eh? Uh, look, but I'll give you ten bucks. <laughs> <laughs> I like coffee too. Yeah, yeah. So, so you've got my word. If I'm going to go to your give a little page, and I understand that you've got one, and I'm going to give you ten dollars. Is that is that kind of is that what you're after? Guys like me to say, yep, ten bucks. I've got it. Yeah, I mean every every dollar towards it is going to count. Absolutely, it's it's not a cheap undertaking, and unfortunately, I didn't win that forty million dollars on Lotto. Yeah, I tried. Uh, so, I tried. Do you know yeah, that I? I did, did you see? I don't know if you follow my Facebook page. This is the hunting show one. I actually pledged to give five million dollars to the Seeker Foundation if I won. Oh, they would have been gutted that you lost. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think they were gutted. They lost. I don't. I. Don't, I <laughs> Yeah, I tried. I, I don't buy lotto tickets. It's the first time I won. Oh, well, first time I tried. First time in probably a year that I've bought a lotto ticket and it didn't work out for me. And, um, yeah. yeah. So, it would, I don't Thought know. you off for another year. Yeah, oh, look, I, I'm not very good at lotto. I, I never remember. You know, that's the main thing. I think lotto's, I've got better things to do with my life than play lotto and Pokemon. Um <laughs> <laughs> so, but I have. I am going to take enough time to go to your page, give you your give a little page, and I'm also going to put a link up to that in the uh, information section of this podcast, so people can give you ten dollars. And where does that ten dollars go? Yeah, so at the moment, like I said, we've got to prove that the zero talent works. So the first thing is that it's going towards is that. So we're going to get these really cool devices, which are GPS iridium collars that send all this amazing data, which is like, you know, about three Christmases for a scientist, um, uh, to a computer. And, <laughs> and we get to watch the deer. So we know, literally know, if that deer survives. We know how long it's been there. In the drop zone, we know whether you know whether it's been how or how much it's been exposed, and we can go and sample if we need to if it does die. And if it doesn't, well, we know that the repellent has been effective. You know, sort of four weeks after the drop, so it's like instant information, and also a whole bunch of other information that we can learn because these collars stay on for a whole year. So mm. that's the first step. And is, getting that, getting that. 
Look, I've, I know a few guys that have done similar research to this, the likes of Cam Speedy in the North Island and bits and pieces. This is expensive stuff. How much do you actually need to complete this section? Okay, so uh, I probably need at this stage, I've got a couple of donations that have come through from like the NCBA National. I've donated a couple of collars um, and the NCBA Bryant's Mulga Bros. They have donated a collar towards the towards the course so that's really cool, Very cool. so pretty much another $40,000 whoa so, yeah. <laughs> so, so you've got a couple of collars and you need another forty grand. <laughs> well I'm, I have to collar at least 10 so the idea is that you know with 10 we're looking at about 10% of the exposed population so in science you've, you've got to have validity and mm. yeah, it's not a, it is not a cheap process like I said it would have been great to win that that lottery because no one been to worry at all. Yeah, well, I feel a bit stink now giving you $10. <laughs> you can give me more if you like. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll buy you a coffee. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it'll, $10, again, this is how crowdfunding works. We saw that with that great project, buying the land down in, in your part of the world or in your island. Um, it can raise money very, very quickly. And I do wish you all the best in your research. I, I love your work. I love what you're trying to pull off here. And what I'd really like to do is, in the near future, catch up with you again and just see where you got to with it. I think this is an ongoing project that would be great for the New Zealand public, to, and particularly the New Zealand hunting public, to have a good knowledge of. Yeah, absolutely. I, I you know, I like to be able to share with everyone what's going on, and I do my best to, to come out of the bush every now and again to to put things on on Facebook. I have got a Facebook page; people can can follow along, and I occasionally get things up there. So, mm. yeah, that will be cool. Yeah. So again, that, the link to that Facebook page will be in the comments or the information sen- uh, section of this podcast, depending on how you listen to it. If you're on iTunes, obviously flip the old logo around, and it's behind there. And if you're on Blog Talk Radio, scroll down. Well, uh, Kaylin, thank you so much for your time. It's been a great interview, and I, I sincerely mean that. I'm giving you $10, and let's catch up very soon. Thanks. Cheers. All right, that's us for another week. You've got it. Remember the end. All you've got to do is be active with us. Like our page. Put your photos up there. Send me stuff. Be involved. Send me emails. I do like your feedback, and I do find it impossible to respond to all of you, although I make an effort. 81% response rate. I see on Facebook today. I do 80, 81% of your emails I respond to in some form. Not bad if I do say so myself. Thank you again. Be careful out there, guys, and good hunting. Podcasting from an undisclosed location, from a secret hunting spot known only to him and the guy who told him about it, and possibly the guy who told the guy who told him. It's a show all about hunting in New Zealand and around the globe. This is The Hunting Show. Find The Hunting Show on Facebook and Twitter for up-to-date information on upcoming shows and topics.